So have you ever played I Spy? You know, I Spy is, is that game where, you know, you, you spy something, you know, someone's it, and they spy something, and then everybody else has to figure out what they have spied. So imagine, you know, you're sitting in a restaurant with your family or a bunch of friends, and y'all decide to play I Spy, and, and you're it, and you say, I spy something green. And everybody starts looking around, you know. They're looking all inside the restaurant, and they're looking all at the other tables, and and then they look through the windows outside. I mean, they're looking everywhere. And they start guessing some things like, um, it's the John Deere sign hanging over the cash register. No, no, that's not it. Oh, it's the 1975 Ford Torino in the parking lot. No, 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 that's not it. It's the guy at the bar wearing Green Lantern pajamas. No, no, that's not it. You're probably wondering what kind of restaurant has John Deere, Green Lantern pajamas, and a Ford Torino in the parking lot. I don't really know. Maybe somewhere you ate this week. And everybody gets it wrong, and they keep guessing, and they keep guessing, and nobody's getting it right. And finally, they're like, ah, we give up. You know, what is it? And you say, ah, it's the pickles on my hamburger. Thank you. Pickles on my hamburger that I didn't order that I had to pull off myself after they brought my plate. Now, for those of y'all, this is your first Sunday. This is the fourth week that I've talked about pickles on hamburgers. Now, I have to be fair, though. Last week, a very wise young man mentioned something that I've been meaning to say for the last few weeks, and that's this. If you do not like pickles, and if you order a hamburger that has pickles on it, accidentally they put them on there, you might face the dreaded danger of pickle juice. It, it can happen, I realize. And, and the pickle juice, it's a thing, okay? So, it is perfectly acceptable in that scenario to ask them to remake your burger. It's fine. You, know, you can do that. It's fine. But you still don't have to lose your mind over it, okay? It, it's okay. You, know, you, you don't have to make everybody in the restaurant cringe because you got pickle juice on your bun, okay? It's, it's okay, but you can, you can ask for a remake. Now, completely useless information, but I'm pretty sure this week... I heard someone lose their mind over hash browns. Yeah, and it happened. Now, I'm sitting in this place. I turned to the guy next to me. I said, hey, man, you want to play a game? He goes, yeah, sure. I said, I spy someone losing their mind over hash browns. And he said, that guy right there. I was like, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. It's been noted that I spy is a great game for kids, especially small kids. They learn to be uh, observational. It helps them in their conversation too. They learn to look and, and to speak a little more, pay attention to things. It's also been said that, that it's good for children who are impatient. You know, when a child's being impatient, you can play I Spy and it kind of helps them uh, get uh, less, kind of distracts them and, and helps them with their impatience. But, but if that's true, then, then that could be good for all of us, right? I mean, for, for all of us who are impatient, why are we impatient? Well, we're impatient for lots of reasons, right? We might be impatient because it's nice outside and we don't want to stay in and do our homework. We might be impatient because it's rainy outside and the power is out at the house and our phone is dying and the battery in the car is dead and we have no way to charge our phone. Yeah, that, that's when we could get a little impatient. We might get impatient because of our grass. Yeah, our grass might have grown taller than our neighbor's fence and, and our push mower won't crank 
and we can't find our riding line more. You know, the last place we saw our ride line more was, was in the backyard before the grass started growing. Yeah, do the math. This would be a personal story I'm sharing right now. We might be impatient when the internet goes out at work. We might be impatient when the mechanic says that our car is going to be there for a whole other week. That can be frustrating. <laughs> All of these are personal things, by the way. We might be frustrated and we might be impatient because our spouse or our parents or maybe one of our kids or maybe somebody at work or at school, they, they seem to sabotage our lives every day by being angry or being annoying or being arrogant or being apathetic. And we might get impatient because the tutoring that we're getting, it's not working. We might be impatient because the extra practice that we're giving is, is not working. We might be impatient because the counseling is not working. We might be impatient because the medicine is not working. You see, we, we all have moments in life where our impatience moves us to discouragement and even to depression and even to the point that we might just start losing heart. So, is there anything we can do for that? Is there anything we can do for moments when we are losing heart? Yes, there is something we can do. And it's kind of like playing I Spy. So what does that mean? Well, let's see if we can find out. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, Paul's writing to his friends in the city of Corinth in ancient Greece, and he says this, while we look not at the things which are seen. Now, at first glance, that sounds a little crazy, right? Hey, I know you're looking around at stuff right now, but don't look around at the stuff that you're seeing right now. I mean, how, how, do, you, how do you not see what you're looking at, you know? Or as the, the old phrase goes, in an awkward moment, there's some things you can't unsee, right? So, so how is it that Paul's saying, look, I, I know you're looking at stuff, but I want you to, to quit looking at that. How do we not look at what we see? Well, first, let's just be sure we know what he's saying here. He's talking about what we're looking at right now. What we're looking at right now. This is, this is present tense stuff. He's not talking about some random reference to what you were looking at last Thursday at 4 o'clock. He's not talking about something you were looking at three years ago on May 4th. And because May 4th is coming, may the 4th be with you. No. Paul's talking about what you're looking at right now. I love how Jeff Thomas puts this. He, he talks about a young woman looking for a future husband. And he says, it's like you're talking to her and, and you say, well, hey, what are you looking for in a future husband? And she says something like, well, I want him to be six foot four and rich. Yeah, that's, that's what I want. And he, and he says that's, that's what she's looking for right now. When she goes to the mall, when she goes to school, when she goes to work, when she goes to the axe-throwing food truck, you know, she is looking for that six foot four guy who's rich. That's what she's looking for right now, everywhere she goes. And this is what he says. Wait until she's been betrayed a few times by a man like that. Now, now let me clarify. He's not saying that all people who are six foot four and rich are terrible, okay? Let me, let me be clear. He's just, he's just saying that whatever your outside desires are, 
Whatever you're looking at on the outside, whatever list you're looking at is, is only the outside things. He said, then, then be careful because you might find those things you're looking for on the outside, but they may not be all they're cracked up to be. He goes on, wait till she's been betrayed a few times by a man like that, and then won't she say something like this? I want someone to settle down with so that we can raise a family together. Someone that I can trust completely, and I want to be loved by him and love him in return. I want someone to make me smile, and we will always be together. And this is what he says. She's talking about invisible things, love and faithfulness and kindness and happiness. She is not fixing her eyes on what is seen. See, that's what Paul's getting at. He's saying, don't be too overly focused and too overly obsessed with the things you can see, the people, the places, the things, the the plans, the pains, the problems that we can see, the visible things. And why should we not be so focused on the visible things? Well, here's the thing, the visible thing, the people, the places, the plans, the problems, the pains, those things can fade, they can rust, they can break. They can mess up, they can disappoint, they can discourage, they can get angry, they can get annoying, they can get arrogant, they can get apathetic, they can leave, and eventually, as all things, they'll die. So the visible things, as great as they may be, they always have the potential to disappoint. They always have the potential to let us down. And so Paul says, don't, fake it, don't, don't focus on the, on the visible things. Don't focus on what you can see. That's what we should not do. What should we do? Look at the next part of verse 18. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Again, present tense. Paul's talking about what we're looking at right now. And he says, we need to be looking now at things which are not seen. <laughs> Paul, come on, man. What does this mean? What are you talking about? I'm supposed to look at things that I can't see. Well, it's just like the young woman looking for a future husband. She switched gears and she started looking for the invisible things. The things that you can't see looking at pictures on social media. The things you can't see looking at a a bio on a dating site. The things you can't see just by looking on the outside. Things you can't see gawking at someone across the smoke machine at the prom. Okay? Things you you can't see, invisible things. Paul's not saying that that visible things don't matter, okay? He's not saying that the people and the places and the problems and the things, he's not saying that, that those things don't matter. He's just saying that the invisible things tend to matter most. And specifically, he means something very certain here. Certain invisible things. What kind? Listen to the rest of verse 18. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Again, present tense, what are you looking at right now? And Paul's saying, look, you don't need to be obsessed. You don't need to be too passionate. You don't need to be overly focused on the visible things because the visible things are temporary. But 
You do need to be passionate. You do need to be a little bit obsessed. You do need to be focused on the things that are invisible because the invisible things of God are eternal. They last forever. There's a huge difference between those two. Johnny Erickson Tata will turn 70 this coming October. For the last 51 years, because of a diving accident, she has been a quadriplegic. This is what she said. Why all the verbs in the present tense? Because God wants to get your heart beating with a present tense excitement, a right around the corner anticipation of heaven. And then she says this, isn't that the way strangers on foreign soil are supposed to feel about their homeland? Do you feel like a foreigner? Do you feel like America is not your true homeland? If you are a Christian, you should. You should. That's what it means to follow Jesus. I love this picture that we see of Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11. About 2,000 years before Jesus was born, there's a man named Abraham who lived, and and Hebrews 11 gives a a little picture of his life. Listen to this, starting in verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Got it? He was looking at what he can't see. Verse 9 and 10. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He was living in the visible things, but he was looking to the invisible things. And it wasn't just him, it was his wife too. Listen to verse 11. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Abraham was 100 when Isaac was born. Sarah was about 90, 91 when Isaac was born. D. James Kennedy told the story one time of a retired railroad conductor And he had spent so much time with his job away from church, it just took him away from being involved in the church, that when he retired, he made a commitment. He said, I am going to start doing more to honor the Lord through my church. And he made a commitment that he was going to start building relationships with people, and he was going to start inviting people to church. And after he died, it was discovered that he had brought 867 people into his church after he retired. James Kennedy said this, are you too old to do anything? I think not. In fact, retired people have more time than most working people. They could use their talents and their energy to serve the Lord and make a great impact. I super agree with the late Dr. Kennedy. A great impact. And some of you are already doing that. 191, they're just getting started with God's will for their life. Listen to verse 12. Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that. <laughs> Golly, that's, that's there, verse 12. As many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, 
and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Millions of descendants came from Abraham and Sarah just saying, you know what? We're going to keep looking to the Lord. We're going to keep looking to the invisible. We're going to live in the visible, but we're going to look to the invisible. We're going to trust what God does. And you know what happens to somebody when they start looking like that? They develop an attitude. And you know what kind of attitude they develop? Well, Hebrews is going to tell us. Hebrews 11, verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen those promises and having welcomed those promises from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. In other words, they never got to see the invisible things that they were looking for here on earth. They always knew they were foreigners, aliens, strangers here, that their homeland was something different. Verse 14 and 15. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have, been out, they would have had an opportunity to return. In other words, they weren't talking about where they grew up because they'd go back there. That's easy enough. No, they were, they were looking for another country. What kind of country? Verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For those of us who profess to be Christians, let me just ask a really uncomfortable question here. Is God ashamed to be called our God? Do we live as if this is the better country? Is that how we think? Do we live as if this is our homeland and instead of being with Jesus forever? You know, there's that old saying that says that he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. To borrow a phrase from last Sunday's sermon, that man doesn't exist. We are way too sinful, we're way too selfish to, to ever be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. But, but are we heavenly minded enough that our God would say, yep, he's, he's mine, yep, she's mine. Because our mind is looking for the, the better country, the, the heavenly country. Now, let me be clear. When, when we talk about looking for the better country and looking for the heavenly country, that doesn't mean that you're not supposed to love your country here, okay? Don't be a punk citizen here, okay? Don't, don't dishonor authority and, and not love your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself. No, actually, what Paul's getting at is just this, that our heavenly citizenship is our primary citizenship, and our heavenly citizenship, our heavenly country, should make us a better earthly citizen. It should make us better here in our earthly country. Because we're loving God first and most, and because we're loving our neighbor in the same way that we love ourselves, we are taking those principles, those truths of heaven, and we are living them out here on this land. And calling us to look and not focus and not aim at the things we can see. What Paul's really doing is he's asking all of us to live like what all the people in heaven right now lived like when they were here. He's asking us to desire a better country. 
He's asking us to desire a heavenly country. Most of us know the name John Newton from his timeless hymn, Amazing Grace, but he was not a one-hit wonder. Newton wrote at least 281 other hymns. I was just looking through some of those 281 this week in, in the book he published called The Olney Hymns. And i tell you what struck me. I probably read through, I don't know, 15 or 20 of them. And you know that, that every single one, just randomly that I picked, they, they were all about heaven. I mean, every single one of them. And I thought, I wonder how many of these 281 are, are just about heaven. You know, we got the one when we've been there 10,000 years, but this joker never stopped writing like that. See, he was living in the visible, but he was looking to the invisible. Paul said this to the folks at the church, the Colossian church, Colossians 3 verse 1, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Keep seeking the things above. I love what Alistair Begg says about this picture. There is nowhere else for him to sit. There's no other seat that is suitable for this Christ. The highest place heaven affords is his right. That's a little phrase you can take with you this week. There's nowhere else for him to sit. <laughs> this is it. The highest place is where Jesus should be. Paul's telling the Corinthians, he's telling the Colossians, he's telling the South Carolinians. He's saying, keep seeking the things above. Keep looking to the invisible things and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it over and over again, every second, every minute, every hour. Just, just fight through whatever's happening, whatever is making you impatient, whatever pickles show up on your hamburger, whatever it is that's going on in your life that causes you to lose your mind. In that moment, look to the invisible. Start seeking the things above. Set your heart on the things above. Fall in love with the things above. Be infatuated with the things above. Why? Because Jesus is there. And because Jesus is there, that's what makes it a better country. That's what makes it a heavenly country. In fact, if Jesus is not there, it's not better and it's not heaven. You see, Jesus is what makes our life have purpose. Jesus is what brings purpose to the pain. Jesus is where we look when we begin to lose heart. And how is it that Jesus is at the right hand of God? Because he was brutally executed on the cross for my sin and for your sin. And then he was placed in a tomb. And then on the third day, the tomb was empty. Jesus is risen, just as he said. He is risen indeed. Indeed, he is risen. It's not a fairy tale. He is risen indeed. It's like Paul is saying to us, hey, I spy something. I spy something incredible. I spy something indestructible. I spy something infinite. And this is what we do. We look around the den, you know. Maybe it's my mom and dad. Maybe it's Uncle Fester. I don't know.
that's waiting for me. Maybe it's the kids or the grandkids. Maybe it's my sports team. Maybe, 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 maybe. And we keep looking and we keep looking, trying to find this incredible thing that we think God is doing in our life. And Paul finally says, do you give up? Yeah, we give up. No, 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 you missed it. It's Jesus. The one who loved you and gave himself up for you. He is the most incredible and indestructible and infinite gift in your life. See, the incredible, indestructible, infinite hope of your life is the risen Jesus who is sitting right now at the right hand of God. That, that's your hope. That's what Paul's trying to get us to do. Keep looking to the invisible. But don't forget the visible. Keep looking to the manger. Keep looking to the cross. Keep looking to the empty tomb. Keep looking to the right hand of God. Keep looking to the better country. Keep looking to Jesus. Why? But why do we have to keep looking? Here's why. Because even in this sermon, you've gotten distracted. <laughs> Maybe even in this sermon, you've gotten impatient. <laughs> I, don't I don't know. I don't know how long I've been going here, you know. But, but that's us, right? I mean, we get distracted. We get impatient. Things happen. So we have to keep looking because if we don't keep looking at the invisible, here's what happens. We get discouraged with the visible. See, the visible can take away all of our hope while the invisible cannot fail us. Again, I feel like Jeff Thomas has given a great picture of this. He describes a bride losing her mind on her wedding day, okay? And this is not over, not over pickles, over pimples, all right? Here we go. This is what he says. The bride says, I found a pimple on my wrist, she cries. But look at the whole picture, you almost shout back at her. Your dress, your veil, your flowers, your hair, all your bridesmaids, your groom, the best man, the church and its decorations, the service, the vows, the hymns, the congregation and their finery, the reception, the honeymoon. Who is going to notice the pimple on your wrist? She is, and I am, and you are. We are pimple pushers. We are. We don't mean to be, but we focus almost exclusively on the pimples of life. It's like we can't get our eyes off of them. But here's the thing. The only way we can start looking away from the visible pimples is by looking to the invisible pleasures of heaven. And those pleasures come to us because Christ is risen indeed, and we are in Christ. Now, someone might be thinking, my spouse is impossible. That's no pimple. My child is rebellious. That's no pimple. I have an unmet desire to have a spouse. That's no pimple. Divorce is no pimple. Cancer is no pimple. I'm not losing heart over a pimple. I'm losing heart because I can't see any hope. I hear you. More importantly, God hears you. And he cares for you. And this is how much he cares for you. 
The answer that Paul gives, it's good for pimples and it's good for pain. See, the, the answer that, that Paul gives, it's good for that pimple that you find on your wrist, and it's good for the pain that pierces your heart. How? Sarah Walton is a wife, a mom of four kids in Chicago. This is what she said. Listen to her story. Pain has taken its toll on me physically, emotionally, and mentally. The damage isn't always visible on my face or in my words, but it's always there, tempting me to view everything through the lens of an aching heart and a weary spirit. Suffering leaves its scars. Some are visible while some lie hidden within the fabric of my being. Multiple scars on my ankle remind me that I can no longer physically do so much of what I used to love. Another scar will be left from the pick line put in my arm to treat my chronic illness. But it's the scars deep within, the ones that no one can see, that have threatened my hope and joy in the greatest way. I'm a woman who carries scars from various forms of abuse and who struggles not to view all relationships through untrusting eyes. I'm a mother who carries scars from unknowingly passing on my illness to each of my four children. And I'm a fallen human being who carries scars from my own sinful desires. Anybody hear a little bit of maybe your story in there? And then she says this. But for every child of God, sin, pain, and scars will not have the last word. What does that mean? She tells us. The enemy taunts us in our pain. You will never be free. Think of all there is to fear. Wallow in your guilt and self-pity. Give way to the hopelessness that grips you. For I have stolen all that is good and beautiful and worth fighting for. And then she says this. But our Savior says, Fear not, my child for you are mine. I bought you with a price and will not let you go. Pain will come, but it will not win. For I have conquered sin and death. I will redeem your life for those who take refuge in me will not be condemned. Though I have allowed this pain, it will not have the last word. I will carry you through it and show you the treasures I have stored up for you along the way. Do not lose heart. My grace is sufficient for you. The enemy is a liar, but I tell you the truth. I began a good work in you, and I will bring it to completion. My strength is greater than your pain. My steadfast love cast out all fear, and my hope is greater than your losses. Lift your eyes, weary child, and rest in my strong arms. Dear Christian, I spy a Savior in a better country with strong arms. Arms strong enough to hold your heart today and arms strong enough to one day get you safely home.